Timothy. My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Seoul, and I'm excited to be sharing uh, from the scriptures with you this morning. Now, we take an extra moment this morning to acknowledge the women in our community created in the image of God and forerunners of the kingdom of heaven. The biological mothers, the adopted mothers, the foster mothers, the expecting mothers, the expectant mothers, the spiritual mothers, the daughters, the sisters, the nieces, the aunts, the grandmothers, the mentors, the disciple makers. Women, we honor you today. And we are thankful uh, for the mercy, for the grace, and for the love that you have invested and, or demonstrated to us and invested in us here in the soul family. And I want to give a couple specific shout outs before we get into the scripture this morning for a number of women in our community who have just been mentioned by our staff team to, to be honored uh, specifically. And uh, they'll receive a small gift from the soul community at some point this week. But I just want to shout out, uh, first of all, Natasha Haynes uh, for being an awesome mother to her kids, for opening up her home and her heart to fostering, and for being a baker extraordinaire. That comes from the soul staff team. I want to shout out Izzy Friesen for showing resiliency this past year through the pandemic and through personal loss, for continuing to serve and be a great example for her small group girls in Young Life. I want to shout out Karen Schrader, the amazing mom of four, uh, who had the chance to be a teacher during all the craziness and unknowns of this year. She's an awesome addition to the worship team as well. She was here this morning on the keys. And uh, we're happy to have her serving. Another shout-out from the staff team at Seoul. Two more here. One to Sharon Machelski, mom. Uh, a mom, a grandma, a teacher, and now a, a therapist, uh, having graduated uh, with her master's degree this spring. And uh, an awesome woman who has accomplished her goals. Finally, uh, a shout-out to Stephanie Salafu, a faithful servant leader uh, who, when we reopened, was quick to come back uh, to in-person church and welcome people from behind her mask, uh, showing excitement and a masked smile is what the note says. So to those women, we honor you this morning. We are thankful for you and for your investment here in the lives of so many of us in the Soul family. All right, let's get into it this morning at Soul Sanctuary. What we do is we take a book of the Bible and we preach through it. We go over every nitty-gritty little verse so that we don't leave anything out. Uh, it, it keeps us from, you know, picking and choosing the things that we want to talk about in church. And it kind of keeps our hearts in check. Okay, what does the scripture say? And let's go through it together. What we've been doing recently is we've been in a series on the minor prophets. So this is a collection of books, small books, at the end of the Old Testament. And we've been doing a book a week. You know, they're usually just a couple chapters. And we've been diving into it, exploring it, and coming out of it with the implications of what it means to us today. This is what we do. We ask five questions of each text. So last week, Pastor Jerry, he taught on the book of Habakkuk. And this week we are in the book of Zephaniah. And the five questions that we will ask together above the, of the book of Zephaniah is number one, who wrote it? Number two, where is it situated in history? Number three, why is it important? Number four, what's the main message of it? And number five, how do we apply this book today? What is the implication for us today? Now, a number of years ago, I went back in my notes. I believe it was 2017. Uh, and I was told that I'd be preaching on Mother's Day. And I thought, okay, great. A great opportunity to preach on Mother's Day. And at that point, we were in the book of Matthew. And if you remember back with me, those of you who have been a part of the Soul family for a while, uh, 
On Mother's Day 2017, our teaching text came from the book of Matthew chapter 5, which was Jesus talking about murder. And so I somehow got stuck with murder on Mother's Day back in 2017, and I fear that something similar has happened again today. I got the note that I'd be preaching on Mother's Day on the book of Zephaniah, because we're just continuing our series here. So I go to the book of Zephaniah, and I was like, what? On Mother's Day? So I don't know how I keep drawing the short end of the stick, but if you didn't know, the book of Zephaniah is, is probably one of the harshest descriptions of God's judgment in the whole of the scripture. All right, welcome to Soul Sanctuary. Happy Mother's Day. We are celebrating women today, and we are in it together in the book of Zephaniah. Okay, here we go. Before we address our questions, our five questions which frame the book and, and, and help us explore the book together, before we do that, let's look to the text itself. And let's, let's expand on the text. We can separate Zephaniah into three main parts. And it closely follows its three chapter divisions. And so let's break it down for us. And let's start with this part one, which really encompasses most of chapter one. Uh, chapter one describes God's judgment on Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah, which is Israel's southern kingdom. So Zephaniah here, to begin the text, what he does is poetically and very graphically, he describes God's punishment on those who have forsaken him. He describes God's punishment on those who have turned to immorality and to the worship of false gods. The judgment is an intense chastisement of the people of Judah. And this is what it says. Let's go chapter 1, verse 17. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about, <laughs> this is Mother's Day, man, that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. He's just getting started. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Hmm. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. Zephaniah is recording the word of the Lord. It's poetic. It's also hyperbolic. He, he's using great exaggeration. And these are God's words to his people, but it's great exaggeration. God's not going to, you know, wipe everybody else so, so that there's nobody living on the earth, but he's proving his point. My wrath will fall on you, Judah. Now, if you stopped here and if you turn this off right now, you'd be missing the most important part of our lesson today. We're just getting into the text. we got to unpack it together here. This is what happens when we preach through each book of the Bible, okay? So, so uh, uh, Zephaniah, he, he's poetic. He is hyperbolic. He's bringing the word of the Lord to the people of Israel. It's like up until this point, uh, uh, God's been trying to woo Judah back to him. He's saying, hey guys, like, come on, come on. Let's go. Come on. I'm going to help you out here. I'm going to extend mercy and grace here. Guys, come back to me. Come back to me. And now he's using his loud, booming voice. Now, now, now his, his voice is raised and he's like, hey, yo, wake up, Judah. All right, chapter two. So, so chapter two really is a, is a great separation point for us for part two. Where, where Zephaniah expands the breadth of God's wrath 
to include the foreign nations which surround Judah. You know, it's these nations that worship other gods, and they have also oppressed Judah. They've oppressed Israel, both the southern and the northern kingdom, in the last couple hundred years. So concerning Assyria, Zephaniah says, he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will leave Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one, and there is none besides me. What a ruin she has become, a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. So remember back to the book of Jonah. And as Pastor Jerry taught on the book of Jonah, we talked about Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, a large and wicked city in Assyria, in the Assyrian Empire. And God's wrath here in Zephaniah 2 is going to be spilled out on that city. It's going to be spilled out on, on Assyria. It's going to be spilled out on Babylon. It's going to be spilled out to the south, to every direction, the neighbors who oppress Judah. And we actually see this prophecy of Zephaniah, which is echoed by other prophets, come true. Because in, in 613 before Common Era, 613 BCE, a coalition of surrounding nations... Um, take over Nineveh, and Nineveh is reduced to ruins. We know this historically. And so Zephaniah then is prophesying at this time, which we'll get into in just a minute. So if we go then to chapter 3 of Zephaniah, this really outlines part 3. The first part of chapter uh, 3 uh, fits into part 2 concerning judgment to other nations, and then it circles back into part 1 where it starts talking about judgment on Jerusalem again, just like chapter 1 did. Now, at verse 3, 8 to 9, there's a distinct pivot point, which marks the beginning of, of part three for us, halfway through chapter three. This is what this pivot point, the turning point of the chapter, really the turning point of the whole book says. Verse eight, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Verse nine, then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. He continues on, verse 11. On that day, Jerusalem, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs that you have done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. Never again will you have an attitude in Jerusalem, right? I will leave within you the meek, and the humble, the remnant of Israel, will trust in the name of the Lord. Now, th this part three and chapter three, and really the whole book, comes to a climax in verse 17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah tracks through the intense judgment of the people, and then he culminates the book in the love and restoration of the Creator God. Uh, with the content of this book in mind, and how we can separate it into part one, Jerusalem, judgment is falling. Part two, nations that surround Jerusalem and, and Judah, judgment is falling. Beginning of part, or of chapter three, we got back to Jerusalem, talk about judgment for Jerusalem. And then at the end, of chapter 3, part 3 for us, 
Is this talk of hope? Is this talk of rebuilding? Is this talk of love? Is this talk of mercy? Is this talk of God gathering a people together who will be his people, holy and unadulterated? Let's get into it. Who wrote the book? Zephaniah the prophet wrote the book of Zephaniah, okay? So when we open Zephaniah, it uniquely outlines Zephaniah's lineage. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, outlines Zephaniah's lineage in a manner which is distinct from the other prophets' descriptors of themselves. Many of the prophets don't even mention themselves. Zephaniah straight up starts with his track record. He's like, this is my genealogy. And what he does is he traces his family line back to King Hezekiah of Judah, one of Judah's good kings. And so Zephaniah appears to start his address uh, with an introduction that would situate him among the leadership of Judah. But, But he's not referencing his past and, and, and the fact that he's in royal lineage of King Hezekiah because of the fact that he's puffing himself up. But rather, what he's doing is he's making an acknowledgement of the fact that his words, specifically his words to the leaders of Judah and the words of God through him, carry with them a significant weight. When, when Zephaniah specifically calls out the leaders of Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 3, Uh, What he does is he calls them treacherous, profane, and unprincipled. What he's doing is he's speaking to those who roll in the same circle as him. He says, this is my royal lineage. Therefore, my words are speaking to my peers. My words are speaking to the leaders of Jerusalem who I am well acquainted with because we roll maybe in the same family, but definitely in the same circles. And we notice that repeatedly... Zephaniah calls out the the rulers and the leaders in Judah, but he never directly calls out Judah's king. So with that in mind, let's go to question number two. Where are we in history? Zephaniah writes during the reign of King Josiah, which takes place from approximately 640 to 609, Uh, before Common Era. We read in 2 Kings 22 that Josiah was only eight years old when he ascends to the throne and reigns over Judah. Uh, 2 Kings tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Josiah takes the throne as a child, grows in maturity, and becomes a champion for religious reform throughout the land. He calls people back to worship of the one true God. He calls people to remember the covenants that God has made with their forefathers. So Zephaniah doesn't call out the good King Josiah, but he calls out pretty much everyone else in Israel or in Judah at this time. So remember the distinction between Israel and Judah and what's going on here. So at this point, Israel's northern kingdom, after the kingdom was separated, the northern kingdom already by 640 uh, had been carried off or had been conquered by Assyria. Pastor Jerry talked about that a number of weeks ago. Conquered by Assyria and, and many of those carried off into exile. What still stands somewhat independent is Judah, which is the southern kingdom. This is where Josiah rules over and this is where Zephaniah is prophesying. Uh, Now, 
Judah still had its degree of independence despite the fact that to the northeast was Assyria, to east was Babylon, the empire that was rising up, and to the south was Egypt. It's surrounded by the big players on all sides. Now, Zephaniah, he knew well the wickedness of many of Israel's or of Judah's previous kings. You know, child sacrifice had happened. The temple that was supposed to be where people worship God had welcomed in other gods, other gods of wood and stone, that they're worshiping things that aren't the creator of the universe. Zephaniah had a front row seat to this. This is happening in his lifetime. And I mean, this, this becomes really evident when uh, the scripture tells us that King Josiah died, and it doesn't take long. In fact, he dies, and within a couple of months, Israel is back ignoring the re uh, reforms that he has brought in, and they're worshiping other gods again. Ultimately, they lapse back into this idol worship, and Babylon comes away, or eventually comes, conquers them, and carries them away into exile. So God then uses Zephaniah to proclaim judgment and wrath upon those who had forsaken the covenant, those who had oppressed Israel. And, and he also, though, begins to speak of God's mercy and of hope, and of evidence that God will not abandon his people, thereby upholding his covenant with them. So why then is Zephaniah important? There's a number of notable features that, that occur in Zephaniah that are unique to Zephaniah. First we see this phrase, the day of the Lord. And it's repeated throughout the book. Now, we've heard that phrase in Joel and in a number of the other prophets, but Zephaniah likes to double down on this phrase, the day of the Lord. He uses this phrase to unpack God's judgment and eventual restoration of Judah through a righteous remnant of people. But he also then alludes, using this phrase, the day of the Lord, to a future day, a future day when God will conquer all injustice and stamp it out and will ultimately reconcile the nations to himself. Not just Judah, but the nations to himself. And this is the final judgment of all things when Christ returns and sets the world to rights. Zephaniah, his prophecy is, is a prophecy for Israel, but it's also a prophecy for you and me. If we look at ourselves in the mirror, we see pretty quickly that we are Israel. So, what's the main message? We see reflected throughout Zephaniah the warning of God's judgment and the eventual restoration of God's people. It makes us ask, why does God judge if he plans to restore? You know, in chapter 2, Zephaniah, he pleads with Judah. He says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Do what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will then be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. So what is it that's pleasing to God? What's the main message of the book? What is pleasing to God? Obedience to his covenant which would then mean righteousness and humility. What is it that God desires of Judah? To turn from their wickedness, to turn from their false gods, and to reorient their lives, humble lives which pursue God and reflect his holiness. 
God demands obedience to the covenant that that Israel had entered into, the Mosaic covenant, uh, the way that they had agreed to live life after God had ransomed them, had taken them out of Egypt. So then, why does God's wrath fall upon Judah? Judah is a people who, like many of us, you and me, walk with pride. They walk with arrogance. They openly worship other gods other than Yahweh. And his righteous jealousy burns. His judgment is then poured out on Judah. And that punt or that, that, that judgment is a refining judgment. A judgment which purifies the heart of the sinner, beckoning them back to him. Zephaniah contains some of the harshest rebukes in the scriptures. We read them already. Yet it also contains some of the most tender images of God. In Zephaniah 1, right at the beginning, Zephaniah kicks things off. After introducing himself, he starts doing this poetic reversal of the crea- creation narrative. You know, in the creation narrative, narrative, God created and then he filled the world. But in Zephaniah 1, it says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and all those who live in Jerusalem, and I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place. I will stamp out the false gods. But in 3.17, like we read this morning, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. He will love, or in his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah teaches us this, that that God is a God who judges his people. That God is the same God who rejoices over his people with song. Think of what it takes to rejoice over somebody with song. Song. This is pure delight that he has in his people. But on the other hand, he's judging. We have to hold this intention. So, how do I apply Zephaniah to my life? How do you apply Zephaniah? How does the soul sanctuary community apply the book of Zephaniah? Now, on one hand, we can take this message and we can apply it as a moral imperative, right? A moral imperative which advocates for good works. We can say, when you sin... God will judge you harshly, so don't sin. You know, I think oftentimes this is how Zephaniah is preached. Definitely the easiest way to preach is just to yell at people that don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. You know what I'm saying? But I think what we do in doing that is we weaponize this passage and we point it at other people instead of allowing the scripture to reveal our hearts. And so maybe just teaching Zephaniah uh, as moral imperative to don't sin because judgment comes. Because bad things happen when you do bad things. I think that's a little weak. I think we could do better. Now, let me say, there is a right and just place for us to talk about God's judgment and sin and the call to Christian holiness and right living. But we need to do some groundwork here first. So to, to, to speak of Zephaniah solely in this way is to ignore chapter 3. The part concerning hope for the future and restoration. Okay, but on the other hand, we can go to Zephaniah and we can just preach chapter 3 verse 17. Yeah, right? Like God, the mighty warrior who saves, sings over his people in delight. He's not going to rebuke you. 
right? We can focus on just the restoration that happens in chapter 3. And I think that's a temptation for us because we generally don't like to reckon with God's judgment. You know, we, we prefer sermons on the judgment of other nations. Like, we could just preach chapter 2. God's going to judge all those other people, right? But what does it look like to hold chapter 1, 2, and 3 in tension with one another? You know, I would much rather stand up here and preach you a sermon only about God's mercy and grace and love and hope and restoration. I want to preach the sermon on Zephaniah 3.17. It's way more palatable to your ears and definitely more in line with our modern sensibilities of acceptance and tolerance. But if we're only then preaching the feel-good stuff, right, we ignore something profound in the character of God. So we have to ask the question, how can a God who desires reconciliation judge those that he loves? How are justice and mercy, judgment and love held together in the character of God? Who is the God that reveals himself in the book of Zephaniah, which is included in our holy scriptures? When does God move in mercy? When does God move in judgment? I think it's here, in asking these questions, that God is accused of being a master manipulator. He's accused of being a doting parent one minute, and a vengeful cosmic dictator the next. For many of us, we don't know how to make sense of God as he reveals himself in the Old Testament. There have been many, many before who have tried to throw out the Old Testament, relegating it to secondary importance. But a faithful Christian witness recognizes that the God of Zephaniah is the same God revealed in the New Testament in Jesus Christ, is the same God who has residence in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit, our God is triune, Father, Son, Spirit. And as the book of Hebrews says, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The scriptures point to a God who is unchanging throughout time. A God whose character we come to know as we learn about Him. In the book of James, chapter 117, it says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. And it comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God's character is consistent. It's reliable. It's knowable. And we come to know God as revealed in Scripture, and notably through the covenants that He makes with His people as recorded in Scripture. Now here's the thing. If we have all these questions about the God of Zephaniah, but we never read the God of Zephaniah, and if we never read how he reveals himself in Jesus Christ, then those questions go unanswered. Then they get swept under the rug to fester and to rot, and before long enough, we stand on top of, it, uh, on top of the rug, and the bottom falls out from beneath us. And here's our commitment, that soul. We're going to preach the scriptures, so let's do it. Let's get into it. 
God reveals himself through the scriptures. He reveals himself through the covenants he makes with his people as recorded in the scripture. Now, a covenant is a relationship between two parties, right? In the ancient Near East, a covenant was used to seal alliances between two nations. The greater nation, called the Caesarean, would generally be more powerful and would be able to provide for the weaker nation that it entered into agreement with. It could provide military support. It could provide, uh, you name it, whatever the weaker nation needed, the Caesarean, the larger nation, could, could dish it out for them. But the vassal, the weaker nation, they were expected to pay tribute. They were expected to abide by the rules that the Caesarean outlined for them. This is how we will have a good working relationship, and we will establish it through covenant. Now, these relationships, covenant relationships of Caesarean and Vassal, are, are well documented outside of the Scripture. We know in ancient Hittite civilizations, we have covenant relationships appearing. So what it looks like in the Old Testament is God is actually co-opting something that his people know already, that they might be familiar with, and he is utilizing it in relationship with them. He is co-opting this idea of covenant and saying, we will enter into covenant together. It's in his gracious movements towards the people of Israel that God takes covenant and he enters into relationship with Israel, formal relationship with them on repeated occasions. Now, understanding these covenants are going to help you and I come to understand the character of God specifically as revealed here. So, first covenant, arguably the first covenant, uh, after the flood, God enters into covenant with Noah. And there's a covenant which affirms the goodness of creation and the image of God in humanity. God says, never again will I flood the earth and destroy all living things. There is a covenant that takes place. Later in Genesis, God enters into covenant with Abraham, and he promises Abraham descendants and blessings, and that, that, that blessing will extend to all people on the earth through him. After the exodus from Egypt, where God brings his people out of slavery, he enters into covenant with Moses, and this establishes what we might come to know as the law. It's a law for the people to live by. How, th this covenant, this Mosaic covenant, governs how they will live as a nation in the land that they were set to inherit. In, in this covenant relationship, God rescued Israel from slavery and delivered them. God becomes the Caesarean, and Israel becomes the vassal. God will defend the interests of Israel, and Israel will live by the terms of the covenant. In 2 Samuel, we see God enter into a covenant with David, where a descendant of David will reign as king and will secure the promises of the land that were promised back to Abraham. That this covenant now, the Davidic covenant, becomes particularly important when we go ahead into the book of Matthew and we're reading Matthew's genealogy of Jesus and we see that Jesus is this king who brings to fulfillment the promises that God has made to David and that it is through Jesus that the nations will be blessed, which are the promises to Abraham. So in each covenant, God is committed to keeping it, even when his people do not. God is committed to keeping his, his obligations to the people of Israel even when they do not keep their obligations 
to him. And this reveals to us God's character. Not the character of a God who flips between justice and and mercy and judgment and love and reconciliation willy-nilly, but something that is consistent. A God whose judgment is perfect. A God whose mercy is perfect. Hear me out for a moment. Often for you to be for something, to be in support of something, you have to be inherently against its opposite. For example, to be for truth, fundamentally for truth, you have to be fundamentally against falsehood. To be for a nice green lawn, you have to be against the weeds that kill your grass. Uh, To be for health, the doctor must work against the sickness. Right? To To be for, to be for long lasting love and fidelity, you have to be against perversion and lust. To be for generosity, you must be against greed. I think this one probably hits home for most of you at home. You know, if I'm going to kill the root of greed in my heart, which if I am totally honest with you, if I am honest with you this morning, looking you right in the eye, if if I'm going to kill that root that always finds a way of rearing its ugly head, then I have to cultivate a habit, a regular practice of generosity. I have to regularly give things away. I I have to give to others. I have to lend to others without expecting anything in return from them. I have to give away my time. I have to give away my money. I have to give away my possessions. This is how I can be against greed and for generosity. And maybe you, like me, need to recognize that there are things in your life that you can't fully embrace until you're ready to reject their opposite, which have a hold on your life. And now, not everything in life has to be an absolute. Contrary, though, to public opinion, there are absolutes. God, in His holiness, cannot be for us unless he is adamantly against the sin that defiles us. Take one look at the world. Turn on your television for one minute. Open up a news feed of any sort for 10 seconds, and you will become overtly aware of the fact that we live in a broken, fallen, sinful world. A world that has, in short, moved away from God's perfect plan for humanity as revealed in the garden. But, despite the fact that we are a world that has moved away from God's plan, God's plan hasn't changed. What started in Eden will end in Eden. We don't see in God a split personality, but we see a consistent character. A character which is at work refining his creation, moving them from self-absorption to selflessness, from pride to humility, from envy to gratitude, from greed to generosity, from dark to light, and from death to life. This is the God of the Scriptures. So let's get back to Zephaniah. He's speaking of the judgment of God. This right, just, and perfect judgment. 
But where is that rooted? It's rooted in the Mosaic Covenant. So we go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And Deuteronomy outlines the covenant for us. And it also outlines uh, the consequences of disregarding the covenant. This is where God outlines the law for the people, how they are going to live as a nation in the land that he has promised them. And in Deuteronomy, the first half of the chapter, it outlines all the blessings that will come. And he says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of your commandments that I give you today, then the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land that he's given you. You go to the second half of Deuteronomy 28 and it says, However, if you do not obey the Lord and you do not carefully follow all his commandments and decrees that I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror, a byword, an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. The Lord will give you exactly what you want. You want to worship other gods of, of wood and stone? Fantastic. If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not they be careful to follow all his commands. These curses will come on you and overtake you. Deuteronomy 28 spells it out. This is the good, y'all. Do what God asks. This is the good. This is the bad, y'all. Don't do what he asks of you. This is what, what's going to happen. And what we see then in Zephaniah is an upholding of the covenant. As the people disregard God in his mercy... He has reached out to them. He has reminded them of the covenant through righteous kings like Hezekiah, through righteous kings like Josiah, who come and impose reforms on how we're going to worship God. But the people continue to disobey. In his mercy, he sends prophets. You know, we are in the prophets. Minor prophet after minor prophet. Like, they are all in there. And he sends prophet after prophet. And these prophets, they give their lives, beckoning people back to righteousness and humility, just like Zephaniah 2 says, to obedience before God. And yet, the people ignore. And so what does God do? Consistent, perfect judge. He honors the covenant. The people have rebelled against God, and when they do so, Despite God's merciful waiting, his merciful beckoning, his judgment falls upon them. But God doesn't throw them out. It's not like, okay, that's it, that's all, you're done. He holds to, true to his covenantal promises. He sees through his side of the agreement. But he does not abandon his people. And I think once we can establish all this, we can divine two key application points. If we're going to talk about the book of Zephaniah in its entirety, and as in its entirety as it's found in the scripture, we have to recognize that, number one, humanity can't save itself. That humanity can't save itself. 
the instructions outlined by God in the Mosaic Covenant taught the people of Israel how to live in a world marred by the stain of sin. In a world where, where sin has defiled the goodness of the garden, God's covenant is a promise of cooperation to reclaim the goodness of the earth, the goodness of creation, the way that it was meant to be. However, time after time after time, the people of Israel demonstrate their propensity to reject, to, to reject God's covenant and to cleave to the gods of wood and stone. Time after time after time, you and I reject God and cleave to other gods. The root of all sin really comes down to idolatry, to putting something before our worship of God. I mean, even under King Josiah's reforms, the people's hearts were still focused on idolatry. Zephaniah, he can see the king doing good work and restoring the temple Big renovation project. Let's worship God the way that he wants us to worship him. But Zephaniah is still calling out everyone else. He still sees that their hearts are set on something other than honoring God. Despite the warnings of the prophets, the people refuse to repent. If you're still having a hard time understanding how God's judgment can be just, God's judgment can be good. Let's look to the Psalms. For the psalmists, repeatedly, over and over throughout the Psalms, God's judgments are things to be celebrated. God's judgments are the only thing that can make the world right. The psalmists recognize that the human condition, the, hu the psalmists recognize that humanity can't save itself. You know, in Psalm 36, chapter 6, your righteousness is like the mountains, O oh God. Your judgments are the great deep. And your uh, man and sorry, Psalm 36, 6. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast alike you save, O oh Lord. Psalm 50, verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. God is the righteous judge worth celebrating. The psalmists understand that the very character of God is good. Therefore, his judgments are both necessary and good. Looking forward to the final judgment, which we'll talk about in a second, where Jesus comes to judge living and dead, which Zephaniah refers to, N.T. Wright says this, in a world of systemic injustice, of bullying, of violence, of arrogance and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and weak are given their due is the best news that there can be. In a world of brokenness, the idea that one day it will be set to rights is the best news that there can be. In a world where sin has distorted goodness, the Christian then can affirm that God is a God who will set it to rights, who will judge, whose way is higher than ours, whose character is holy, who is truly the righteous and humble judge. Israel, 
couldn't save itself from sin. And as Christians today, we must look in the mirror and recognize that we are Israel. That there is nothing that you can do to save yourself from the sin that so easily entangles you. That there is nothing that I can do, no amount of willpower, no lifestyle reforms that I can bring upon myself, no promises that I can make to God. There is nothing that will save me. There is nothing that will save you from God's judgment for your sin. Paul says in Romans 3 that the wages of sin is death. Don't turn it off here. This then leads us to our second application as we read Zephaniah in its entirety. It's the foretelling of Zephaniah, which I just alluded to. It's that humanity is saved and restored through Christ. That there is nothing I can do to save myself. That there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. However, Zephaniah points to a future where a faithful remnant will return to Jerusalem and again worship God free of idolatry and free of perversion. And we know by looking at the latter prophets that Jerusalem is indeed restored and that God is worshipped. Yet, yet again, that worship is distorted. Jeremiah points to something, though, contemporary of Zephaniah, in fact. He, he points to something. Chapter 31. The days are coming. Jeremiah is another prophet, okay? Declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. He's saying, I walked my people out of Egypt. I entered into relationship with them in covenant and they broke it even though I was consistently faithful to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or to say uh, to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. God promises through, through Jeremiah and, and Zephaniah, he promises a day when he would make a new covenant unlike the one that Israel had broken. The coming day would bring forgiveness of sin. It would bring internal reward of the heart. It would bring knowledge of God. And on the night of Jesus' last supper, Jesus takes the cup and he declares that his death would be the inauguration of this new covenant. This cup is the new covenant, Jesus says. Now it is through, the, it is through Jesus 
and only through Jesus that humanity is loosed from the bondage of its sin and brought into right relationship with God. The historic work of God through Israel is being brought to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Fully divine, fully human, the character of God on full display. Remember, Romans, yes, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And here we have it, the Christian hope. Theologian John Stott, he said, when we look at the cross, we see the justice, love, wisdom, and power of God. It is not easy to to decide which is most luminously revealed, whether the justice of God in judging sin or the love of God in bearing the judgment in our place or the wisdom of God in perfectly combining the two or the power of God in saving those who believe. For the cross is equally an act and therefore a demonstration of God's justice, of his love, of his wisdom, and of his power. The cross assures us that this, that, that this God is the reality within, behind, and beyond the universe. That the cross of Jesus Christ points to something so much greater than anything I can conjure up within myself. That the cross of Jesus Christ points to complete forgiveness and absolution of my sin. Now, God's love of justice demands that our sin is called to account. That our perversions of his good are called to account. God's love sent his son to account for our sin. God's wisdom figured out how that works together. And God's power brings about salvation to you and I. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news is that Jesus Christ has come and that he has inaugurated a new world in which sin has no hold on us, where we have been brought from death to life, where we are no longer mastered by anything. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ will return as judge. He will set the world to rights. He will right every wrong and finish the work that he has started upon his death and resurrection. This is the day of the Lord. Zephaniah points to this day. To the day where the Lord is reigning among his people, where he walks with them. Now remember, Zephaniah 3.17, when When the mighty warrior who saves takes great delight in his people. You know, where that saving warrior is no longer rebuking his people, but he is rejoicing over them with singing. Where where, where God is rejoicing over his people with song. I mean, I like to sing a lot. I I sing around the house. I turn up the the sonos real loud sometimes, and I I just belt it out. I mean, I know the joy that singing brings me. And that's just the tiniest foretaste for me. I, I can't really sing. I just like to sing. It brings me joy. But, but that's just a foretaste for me of how, how ecstatic and jubilant 
and excited God here is, you know, the mighty warrior who saves, I think this is a direct reference to Jesus, that Jesus is singing over his people. Zephaniah here, he's pointing to Revelation 21. Right? He's literally talking about a new Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that has been brought up anew. Revelation talks about a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth in which Jesus Christ has judged and now reigns as Lord, where sin and death have been defeated, where those who have been saved delight in God, and where God delights in his people. So then, What does the mighty warrior who saves call his people to in the present? In the new covenant of Jesus Christ, what does God call you to? What does God call me to? Quite simply, it's the same thing that God calls Judah to in Zephaniah. He calls us to humility and righteousness. The beginning of Zephaniah chapter 2. You know, seek the Lord. All you humble of the land, you who do what he commands, seek righteousness and seek humility. You know, it's the same thing that God called Judah to through Zephaniah, humility and righteousness. The call for you, O Christian, is to humble yourself before God, to flee from your idol worship, to cleave to Christ. The call for you, O Christian, is to turn from your sin and turn towards your Creator. To worship Him in spirit and in truth. Acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with your God. In full recognition that you cannot save yourself from your sin, but that God has made a way for you. In His infinite wisdom, the Creator God has made a way of grace... For you through Jesus who took your punishment for you. Paul in Romans chapter 8, he illustrates this for us beautifully. He says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here it is. He has poured out his Holy Spirit on you, which sanctifies you as you pursue righteousness. He has given you the church, his bride, to walk alongside you, to hold you up, to call God's best out of you as you live your life in pursuit of him basking in his liberating grace which comes through Jesus as we eagerly await his future coming when he will restore creation to the praise of his glory forever and ever. Amen. The book of Zephaniah is written to Israel and we soon recognize that we are Israel. That we are Judah Let's pray. Faithful God, loving and merciful judge, 
we are by no means worthy of your presence. We are often slanderers of others. We cast judgment upon our neighbor. And we turn a blind eye to our own sin. We put other gods before you. Lord, forgive us for the times where we have pursued our will over yours. And help us to not live as hypocrites, but as faithful stewards of your many gifts. May we recognize our inability to save ourselves, and may we cleave to the eternal hope that is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. In times of old, the one giving a blessing would extend hands, and those receiving a blessing would do likewise. So if you would like a blessing, sitting at home, on your couch, in your bed, wherever you're at this morning, would you extend your hands with me? Our blessing comes straight out of the book of Hebrews. Soul sanctuary. That part's not in Hebrews, but the rest is. Soul sanctuary. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So sanctuary, go in peace, be blessed, and we will see you next week.